Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling it? <laughs> And welcome to Sustaining Open Source Design, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source and design, but really the conflicts between open source and design themselves. How do you get one person in the other camp? How do you get that camp back in the other person, et cetera, et cetera. Very excited to be here today with our guest. Before we introduce them, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are on this podcast who will chime in at times. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Also on the podcast today, we have Errol Fox. Errol, how are you doing? I'm doing good. My head is full of lots of open source design related questions that hopefully we will talk about lots of with our guest. That's great. My head is full of sniffles because I just shoveled my driveway. Django Skarupa, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I woke up a little bit late. The same snow that hit you hit me, and I'll get out there and shovel that later. For those of you who don't know, Django is a new panelist on this podcast. Sometimes we invite guests to just join us and have conversations with more guests, because why not? This is for us and by us. Django is joining us today from his home in Massachusetts. He also works at OpenRIT, the new open OSPO-like giant, let's get all the students to open forever place there. The, of course, RIT is the Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York. Django also recorded a podcast with us. So if you're interested in hearing more about him and his background, his pronouns are, of course, he or they. Please go check it out. But now on to the other person. Eileen Wagner, Eileen Wagner, however you want to say it, is here today. Eileen, it is great to have you calling in from Berlin, Germany, where she works. Eileen, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm very well. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you. So Eileen is a UX designer and a general consultant. She works mainly on privacy enhancing technologies, which is pretty cool. I'm going to get into what that means in a bit. She's very active in the German public interest tech sphere. She helped start the Prototype Fund and now the upcoming Sovereign Tech Fund, which is not so succinctly named in German. It has an awesome, really cool long name because Germany is the best. She also founded the Open Design Project Decentralization off the shelf and as part of the Open Source Design Network, which is great because this is the Open Source Design Podcast, of course. She's also worked with over 50 open source projects and still doesn't know how to design an icon set. But who does? Eileen, can you tell us a bit about how you got to where you are? How did you first think that you were a designer? What was your first design job? What does design mean to you? And like, how does that happen? Oh, wow. You know, I had a bit of an unusual career in design, but I also think nobody actually has kind of the standard design career, especially in open source. So I think it's probably good to talk about it. <laughs> I come from the discipline of mathematical logic which is neither design nor coding nor uh, any kind of sort of product role. But, you know, after that, I kind of had a bit of a moment where I was like, I kind of want to do things that impact people rather than just produce more papers and more books and more thought. And so I went on to do some nonprofit tech stuff in Germany, the public interest tech space. And 
usually people start out being a practitioner and doing things and then they maybe after a few years become a mentor and then maybe a coach and start organizing, getting funding, and then I do the bigger picture stuff. For me, it was definitely the other way around. I like started thinking about, oh, like how does nonprofit design work? Oh, I'm actually just going to do some design stuff in the nonprofit world and I'm going to coach projects and do things. And now I'm sort of at the point where, oh, it's time for me to just do things. I don't want to think about the bigger picture anymore. I just want to do design. So yeah, my trajectory is really sort of the opposite direction. But the moment I really realized I wanted to be a designer, I think that was when I had a first moment looking at one of the prototype fund projects that I was supporting. And we had these design coaches who were, you know, my former colleagues at Simply Secure who came in and they just did an amazing job really helping a project out in a way that I, as, you know, a past funder, never was able to, right? Like I never actually could talk shop at the project level. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my goodness, I think all this time I really just needed to be a designer who changes things sort of on the first order level rather than on the like bigger picture abstract level. That was kind of a roundabout way of just saying I kind of fell into design for the impact it could have, not because I was like born thinking, oh, oh my goodness, I'm one day going to be a big shot designer and change the paradigms of how people interact with their devices or anything like that. It was very sort of very like a needs-based way of getting here. I think what's interesting about that is you're having a, there's a supposition that design actually changes things for other people. And I'm not sure that's always a given. For me, design is often the, the person who gets handed the project that's kind of finished and says, okay, you need to go paint this. Or it's the person who's like, okay, can you give us a good example after talking to these people of like what we need to do to make them do what we want? And I feel like the people who have power are often say the CEOs, the CTOs, the project leaders, the committees that actually get the work done occasionally in things like municipal offices. And so I'm curious about what you think about design as actually having real change. What am I wrong about in what I just said? Well, I think you're probably very accurate about how design is usually practiced in these sort of bigger corporate and governmental settings. I do think that the luxury that I had was that in my entire design career, I've only ever been in touch with people who are in these sort of smaller organizations, you know, very much developer-led teams that gave me that freedom where when you did say something, it was just taken as an idea at face value. It never really needed to be justified by the higher ups or it never actually had to be a long process. It just always was sort of like, oh, that's a good idea. Why don't we do it? And then three days later, it was done. And I think that's the advantage. I mean, I will talk more about the disadvantage, of course, of you know working in open source, but the advantage is certainly the fact that the structurelessness also gives you opportunities that you otherwise may not have. I would really love for these higher level concepts that we've just been talking about, if you can and are able to talk about some of the individual projects that you've coached or supported or the ways in which you've seen your design efforts, however you want to describe design within those efforts, how they've impacted these projects. Because I think sometimes we can talk really broadly about design and open source. And I think that I would love to hear more stories about like examples of how that works within like these projects. 
I remember one of the projects I coached, they were building a tool for journalists. And I said, oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, archiving things for journalists. That's a real use case. How'd you get the idea? And they were like, oh, you know, I, I really am kind of a archiving nerd. And I thought this might be a good thing. I was like, oh, but we've not really ever talked to any journalists before. And they were like, oh, no, should I? Right? Like there's a, just like this idea of, are you actually in touch with the people that you're building this thing for? And that's such a simple question, but it's so powerful that like, oh, are you in touch? Are you actually understanding the context here? And then the amazing thing was, you know, I said, well, if it's possible at all, just find some journalists. I know they're very busy usually and very just they don't really have the headspace for that kind of work, but just try to talk to some of them. And a few weeks later, this person came back to me and they were like, oh, you know what? I just camped in front of this particular like journalistic institution's office in Berlin. Like I just camped in front of their office and like intercepted those people at lunchtime. Like I just grabbed journalists like when they were off going to lunch and I talked to them and here are the things that we learned that, you know, would totally change the design of my tool, right? Like I, some assumption I had previously just totally wasn't true. The kind of classic idea of, oh, wow, like, and I feel like, of course, as a designer, I didn't even have to do any of that. But just having that conversation with someone inspired them to actually go out and seek advice and interview people, interview journalists, no less. Right. Like that to me is a transformation, not just for the project, but for the person kind of feeling like you have the agency to do that and to talk to people. That's just kind of a nice feeling like that's the sort of warm and fuzzy feeling that makes my job just wonderful. So that's one example. But I think there's also other ways to think about design. I've always felt that, and you touched on this too, that unlike in like an engineering standpoint or in a production standpoint, the design position is uniquely established to provide advocacy for direct client interaction. So advocacy for improving client experience overall. And it really seems like that's what you're talking about, like research and investigation into how to improve the experience overall. Yes, absolutely. I think so much of the value of design and open source context is the process, introducing process and structure and ways of approaching things much more than delivering the screens, giving them the icon set or pointing to whatever other resources we use. I think it's the mindset that ultimately is what we're after, changing the way people think about they build software and the way they talk to their users, the way they collect feedback, all of this. And it's, that's the real value of design in my practice, at least. So within your example, Eileen, I think it's so interesting that often the role that designers play or anybody really can play this role in a lot of ways once you are inducted into this questioning sort of space of do you know about or have you investigated this and have you basically challenged your own assumptions about what you want to make for people? And I often want to laugh about this because from what I can understand of open source is that it is open and the barrier to entry is often the technical ability or the finding the project ability and that actually the kind of um, principles of open source are that what anybody should be able to contribute if they can meet some of these hurdles and barriers about trying to actually access the thing. 
So I often find it really, I don't know whether it's like a dark humor about then hearing about projects that just haven't engaged with the people that will end up using it because I feel like it sometimes conflicts against like the nature of what open source is trying to achieve by being open. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that and how close it is to design, but it sort of seems like maybe the user experience of open source as a whole needs to improve. Absolutely. Oh, I, I love to talk more about openness in, in general as a concept, because not only is it openness in the sense of, oh, anyone can contribute to the code, but also sort of it's open to everyone to use. So more often than not, in open source, you find that like, oh, who is this thing for? Answer, everyone. This idea of universal design, oh, like who everybody should, especially when we're talking about privacy technologies. Oh, well, everybody should use, you know, my like very secure cloud hosting software library, etc. So you get that narrative a lot. But of course, we also know that openness, you know, just because it is technically open, it's not lived openness, right? You don't actually have new people coming in all the time and contributing things. I also think it's really different for designers to join a community than it is for coders, just because of the nature of the contributions. The coding experience, not that I code a lot, but like it's very much like, oh, you know, here's a bug that I found. I'm going to file a bug report. Oh, maybe I'll even fix it, you know, and then it's like three lines of code that you fix and then someone reviews it and then done, right? And all of a sudden you're a contributor and design is rarely like that. It's very rarely like, oh, here's an icon that I can change, right? Like the classic joke that we all know. It's way more holistic always. It's always thinking about the conceptual questions, the flows, how things fit together, tone. All of these changes invite sort of bigger changes. And it's not simple to just say, oh, I can just join a community and do my like, I don't know, two screens of change. It's usually like, oh, I actually need to join this community and participate in a way that is more meaningful than someone else who's just changing three lines of code. This is kind of an interesting topic in and of itself, because we often get into the cultural aspects of open source when we discuss about design, because to some extent, participating in anything you need to engage in, whatever cultural norms have been set within that community and you have to find how you exist within that space. But it is often a conversation I have with lots of designers. I don't know if you've had similar conversations with projects and how we might be able to improve the user experience of open source and openness generally by doing what you said in your example originally with the tool that you advised that they went out and practice this new way of being open, right? This new way of being open and also participating with their users, essentially. But yeah, a lot of the time when I'm talking to designers about wanting to participate in open source, it's often like this is a months and years kind of gig, not necessarily a short term improve a set of things like icons. Although those things exist, but you know, it, it depends what kind of designer you want to be and how you want to exist with an open source. But I do think that there's often that tension between a new kind of culture coming into an existing space where maybe something was a norm before. So this is how developers participate. This is kind of this way. Well, actually, there's all of us designers that really want to come in here and do these improvements. And we actually want to participate in this way. So how can we be there? And there seems to be at some points these tensions. I also think if I can just react real quick, it's so true to the fact of how GitHub is designed 
that these contributions can only look like that. I mean, not to go design on design, but it's like very like the interface, the whole framework, everything is catered toward the coding experience. I mean, imagine if every GitHub repository had like a user research tab by default. You have the issues, you have the projects, you have the contributions and whatnot. What if there were just by default, you know, here's the user research affiliated with this project or here's the code of conduct. I mean, my goodness, what are the kind of building blocks that we need to make sure that these projects have the kind of design community support that they currently often lack? So much of that is in the infrastructure itself. I really love what you just said, because my question was going to be, how do we get away from us as user experience designers needing to sort of be embedded with the community for a long period of time in order to affect any real overall change? Because as a graphic designer, I can create an icon set. I can help someone develop the atoms for their overall atomic design of their project. But as a user experience designer, you need to create so much research and develop user flows and personas and all of these things. So how do we improve the infrastructure to improve the user experience of user experience designers within the overall user experience system of open source design? I love this meta question. Maybe this is what we should all do. We should just start like a community that's just called like the UX of UX. And we can can just talk about how to set those expectations. I mean, I don't really have a quick solution here. My experience has just been go and you meet people where they are and you start doing one little thing and people usually like that. Well, usually, sometimes it doesn't go well, but when it does go well, you know, you can build on that and then slowly introduce processes. It's really not so much a thing that I've never had success with going in with a predefined process and changing things completely. Like that just doesn't work and also is not really the point of change. The point is not the process. The, ch- the point is the change you want to see. How do you deal with what I see as an inherent disconnect between your desire for, say, privacy-enhancing tools, which is you making a judgment statement about what those users want or not? Or perhaps you're listening to the users and they say they want this and therefore I will help them get this. But I'm curious about agency and about as a designer, it always seems to me that design is really arrogant. Because it's saying, I want the world to look like this and I'm going to figure out how to make the process work. And you just said it doesn't work when you go on with the process. You have to listen first. But how much ego do you have to remove before it becomes something else? I don't know. This is a problem I I often wonder about. I didn't say it very eloquently, but do you understand what I'm asking? I do. And I think what I have that maybe you don't is I just never actually thought of myself as a designer first. Design advocate, maybe. But in my view... I think this idea of like the lonesome designer on the ivory tower, again, like changing the paradigms of how people interact with the world, that just doesn't quite exist anymore. I think design is always being done in the world and you just can't have any ego. Like that's just what it is. You just have to talk to people and be their servant. That's the whole participatory design principle also. Like I don't go into projects and say, well, this is how you should do it. I go into projects and I say, let me help you find out how users would want to interact with this thing. That's, I think, the the big shift that I think also has happened, not just in my little open source domain, but also in the bigger industry domain as well. So it's kind of nice to see that. 
of course, there are, there are shortcuts. Shortcuts exist, and that's also things people should be using. But I think in principle, I would always argue for don't assume, even if it's something you're very familiar with, don't assume that the things that you have learned as a designer for so many years will always be true. Things change very quickly, especially in privacy and security. Thank you, Eileen. And I think you mentioned at the very beginning that you kind of left the academic space because you wanted to like stop sitting in the ivory tower wondering about the UX of UX. And here we are thinking of setting up a group for that. So I think to go a bit different, what are you doing right now that's on the ground and cool that's helping people out? What is the prototype fund? What is the sovereign tech fund? How is that helping out? Yeah, there are two answers. I will start with the funding program designs. And so the prototype fund existed for quite a while now. It was started by some people, including myself in the German Open Knowledge Foundation in 2015, 16. I mean, it's been going on and still will be going on for a while, which is kind of amazing. It's sort of small grants and budgets for open source projects to mostly start on the I would say application side of things. So if you want to build a little platform, a little tool, Prototype Fund is a really good option to just literally help you get the prototype out. In the course of doing that, and this is not just me, this is mostly my co-authors on the Sovereign Tech Fund feasibility study, who are Adriana Kroh, Katharina Meyer, Fiona Krakenberger. All of us have been involved at various times with the Prototype Fund, and we have all sort of observed, you know, it's amazing how many people apply for it, but most of the people who apply for it need way bigger budgets and way more support than what the prototype fund could offer. And this is how the sovereign tech fund idea was sort of, well, birthed. It was also a little bit related to the OTF scare that we all had in 2020. So, you know, all of a sudden the German sort of open source space was like, oh, wait, all these years we've been kind of relying on American funding for core infrastructure and beyond. What are we going to do if OTF continues to be attacked by the Trump administration? That was sort of the premise. And this new fund that is being proposed and is going to probably become a reality, fingers crossed, this is going to kind of address that angle. So how can we sustain larger open source projects that we would count as core infrastructure and using German government money. So that's the key. And where I come in, I guess, is I'm still a designer. So I help them think about the design of the funding program, which is something I've done both as part of the prototype fund work, but also when I was at Simply Secure previously, we've done a lot of work on sort of making the funding experience a little bit less painful, both for funders and for grantees. I really want to talk about funding and design and funding now because we've used the word design and funding in the same sentence. And I am really interested in what funding design for open source does look like. But I'm also really curious about something that you said a couple of questions ago, which was uh, you used the word, we use participatory design, but also servant. Designers are in service of the tools or ideas or projects that they are looking to help guide, facilitate, improve, whatever kind of words you want to use there. And I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about what that means to, maybe you want to speak to this from your own experience as a designer, but kind of what effect being that role has on designers? Because you mentioned the word emotional labor in our preparation document. And I think about what it means to facilitate difficult 
conversations a lot of the time. And they don't think this is an aspect of design that gets talked about enough. So please. Thank you for mentioning that. I think it's something that people, if they're thinking about going into an open source project as a designer, should be keenly aware of. And I already mentioned design is a holistic practice. It's never just change a few lines of code and that's it. And I think because of that, because you're talking about your users, your process, your team internal communication, very quickly, you're sort of the designated, I don't want to say product owner or product manager, but you get that role really quickly. And oftentimes you're also the bearer of the emotional labor in the group, just because people are like, oh, I need to vent to you, like all these things that aren't going right and haven't been going right for the last 15 years. And finally, we're so happy you're here. And then before you know it, I mean, you're just there to do some work, right? You're just there to, oh, like this is a project I like, I want to contribute, or maybe, you know, this is going to pay my bills. And then all of a sudden you're, you find yourself in a situation where people expect from you that kind of emotional labor that you usually probably wouldn't expect to perform if this were a industry job or a government job or whatever. And I guess I'm just, it's just, yeah, red flag for anybody who who's not prepared to do that kind of work because, you know, I found myself in situations where I'm more of a group therapist than anything else. And I'm okay with that, I guess, but it certainly wasn't necessarily what I signed up for in the beginning. It's hard to come out of that sort of those initial meetings where someone just like dumps all of that information on you with and then like isolate the actual things that need fixing. How do you manage that when someone comes in and says, oh, well, here's all of our issues that we've had for 15 years. We're so glad you're here now that you can fix them all. And you have to be like, this could take years to do all of this. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The expectation management is really hard there. You can't be expected to change everything about a project, which is also why you got to set boundaries and you got to know what it is that you want to do. Always have a plan. That's just good project management. Always have a plan, say like, this is what we can do in Q1 maybe three user interviews and we'll make a list. <laughs> but you're totally right. It's very hard. And also we talked about joining a project, meaning more than when other contributors join the project. When you as a designer join the project, you're tied to the project all of a sudden. And it's really hard to get out of there too. And that's just kind of unfair, isn't it? Other people get the benefit of leaving whenever they can. But as a designer, you're just, oh, well, I, I better own the, the design system here. I think another sort of hidden aspect of this emotional work is you've, I think you've talked about it a little bit, but if there are tensions within a project, whatever those tensions are between different roles or different people, you do kind of become like the, I don't know if this is a good phrase to use, but like the lightning rod where you attract that information. But also the kind of hostility that some projects do have towards design as a function so you're not only becoming like the kind of bucket that you're holding the information of all these things that need fixing and that you want to do that role, but also the intense skepticism that a lot of folks often have in the technical. I keep using the word technical in reference to people that do code. I really need to remove it from my vocabulary because everything is technical. But people that do the code side of things often have towards the practice of design. So... Yeah, it's a tricky space to operate in. It definitely is. And I think you're totally right about the lightning rod the situation. Everybody loves fighting over color schemes. That's just something somehow nobody 
really talks about the fundamental things, but color schemes are like, there's something about design that makes visible things that may be otherwise hidden. And that's where all the conflict starts. Well, we're running up on time and I want to make sure that we actually get in a few more things. So you talked about the Sovereign Tech Fund and how you're planning to get designers be able to apply for whatever they can for bigger things to make sure that we can actually change the world and have better, say, privacy suites and the like. Because it's nascent and new, and I know there's a PDF that you've translated into English for those listeners of this podcast who don't speak German or read German. So that'll be in the show notes as well. What are the next steps? So what can designers do to get involved? And what are you most excited about to see in the, the coming few months about this project? So I'm really excited about how this proposal, I guess it's not a proposal, it's a feasibility study, which is sort of a funny piece of document in like German policy making. It's not quite a proposal, it's public, and it's also not guaranteed that the people who wrote it will actually be involved. So it's just, we'll see what happens. But it's amazing that it is backed by user research, that we have actually spent time to talk to people in the space and really thought about how is this funding program going to fit into the existing context rather than perpetuate the issues that already existed for many years. One big thing that I'm pretty excited about is it's not going to have a classic kind of grand proposal flow. It will have one just to be sure that you know, people who do want to apply can apply. But the main way this funding program is going to distribute money is by scouting. And by that, we mean it's going to look into critical infrastructure projects. Uh, there's going to be a team of researchers whose job it is to literally like just be an open source all day and distribute money. And once you're selected for, you know, oh, this is, it looks like you need some little, uh, you know, a little help here and there, maybe, you know, then you're like part of a database, a cohort, and you can be given money that's between 50 and 500K for up to two years, which I think is just an amazing way of sort of really getting money out there without it being sort of a barrier of entry sort of situation. The other thing that I'm really excited about is that it's not going to be money only. This is my open source design learning here. There's a lot of support on obviously design questions, but also governance questions, security audits, kind of anything that you might need as an open source project that you cannot resource for, this funding program has some sort of a solution for it. And it's pretty flexible too, which you can't say for the typical German government funding program. So a lot of good things. And I'm pretty excited about this actually coming to life. Well, it funded uh, a Deutsche Kurz for me to learn the German language is better than I currently have it, because that would be the best. Just saying, I would really like to have like more German design and open source. Uh, Sorry, that was a lame joke, everyone. <laughs> I just had to ask it anyway. All right, Eileen, since we are now at time and we have one small section of the program left, I want to make sure before we jump on to Spotlight, people know how they can get involved with stuff that you do. You've obviously been in this space a long time. You obviously have a lot of really awesome thoughts, which we have only skimmed the tip of the iceberg almost like ice skates on the iceberg. There's so much more that I wanted to ask that we didn't have time for today. So where can people find you online or get involved in the projects that you do? Well, I'm involved in a couple of projects. I think the one that's relevant here that I think 
probably already gets a lot of love, but I'm just I'm just going to like haul more love towards it is open source design. That's a network of folks. I mean, Errol is already in it. We're all probably somehow involved in it. And I think it's just a wonderful place to kind of continue conversations like this. And it also has a job board, which I think is 50% of the work of being in this community. You just really want to match up people. You want to make sure that people who need designers get designers and people who want to contribute have a way to contribute. So these are, I think, really good places to go to. I'm also organizing an open design project, Decentralization Off the Shelf. And that's an effort to sort of collect UX patterns that would help decentralization generally. And you can read as much and as little into that term as you want. But basically, any kind of UX pattern that would help people be less scared of entering a decentralization technology space. That's the goal. And we really want to have more designers there who are just kind of contributing ideas and testing things out and maybe also just hang out with us. Yeah. Decentralization off the shelf. That's the project. Thank you so much. You can find that decent patterns at XYZ or opensourcedesign.net. This is half of this podcast is the open source design network. The sustained open source design is the name of the podcast. So anyone who's listening, you're now also in the open source design network. Come join us and talk to us. Sustain also has a discourse forum where we talk about things. If you want to come talk about sustaining more, that's at sustainoss.org. With that having been said, let's move on to Spotlight. Spotlight is the part of the show at the very end where we just shake things up a bit and we instead point out projects, people, things, dogs, or what have you, which we just think need more love and or should have the light shown on them. Errol, what is your Spotlight today? Well, you've just made me want to change my spotlight, Richard, because the Sustain Open Source Design UX and Working Group actually started as one of the projects, uh, Inventory, for different design resources that are useful for open source projects. So I'm going to change my spotlight from what I had written down previously to that one, because what we are looking for now is anybody, not just designers, but anybody that has an interesting design in open source or design related resource that could apply to open source to submit to that. But the caveat is that you have to really explain why you think it's useful to open source. So you can't just send a load of links to the inventory and say, these are great design resources. You have to give us a good reason about where, why, and when you think this is useful for open source projects to use. That's my spotlight. Thank you so much. Django, what's yours? I might actually have something that I would consider submitting there because very recently the community at undraw.co has come to my mind and my eyes. And this is a whole collection of infographics and informative stock photos and hand-drawn images with any accent color you want, anything that you really desire. And there's a huge number of these that are out there which I've used it in my work recently. And I think we will be continuing to use it in our work at Open at RIT because it's really streamlined the whole process. And if we don't have a illustrator on staff, a lot of these are polished enough and high quality enough that I would feel comfortable using them in academic publications and other things of that nature. So that's undraw.co. Sweet. Thank you so much. Mine has been mentioned before on this podcast, the Open Knowledge Foundation. OKF was really instrumental in getting me into open in the first place. The OKF meeting in Berlin in, I believe, 2011 was awesome. 
I skipped my college graduation to go present there instead, and it was the best. So, OKF, go check them out. Still going strong 10 years later. Really awesome organization dedicated towards more things open. Eileen, what's your spotlight today? My spotlight is also a wonderful open source design story. MuseScore, which is an open source sheet music editor that I have been using for literally years now. It's amazing. I mean, I don't need to tell you how awesome it is to just have a place where not only you can get a free and open source software, but also kind of a platform where people just exchange sheet music all the time and it's all openly licensed. That's just fantastic. And the story that I brought with me is also an amazing one. It's a UX designer and a composer, Tanta Cruel, Martin Kiri, who reviewed MuseScore on YouTube. If you haven't seen it already, you should totally go see it. I'll post the the YouTube video in the show notes. And a few months later, he became head of design at MuseScore. And I think that's just a wonderful story. If you ever find yourself to be unhappy with the tools you're using, make a YouTube video about it and also just talk to the community. This is what open source is there for. You can change it. Awesome. Love that. Thank you so much. What a great spotlight. Eileen, it's been great to have you on. Really appreciated the opening up of the conversation here. Hopefully this isn't a closing. Listeners, come and join us. Join Open Source Design. Join Sustain. Come hang out. And thank you all for listening. And Eileen, thank you again for being here. Thank you for having me. 